the real objective of the Artemis One flight, this one that's coming up, is it's planned to be the first uncrewed flight of the integrated SLS Orion system. We'll trace this series of orbits around the moon and we'll test out our critical systems and then we'll come back to Earth and test our heat shield. It's exciting to see a NASA vehicle back in space. Welcome to Episode 75 of Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. In Greek mythology, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo and goddess of the moon. Now she personifies our path to the moon as the name of NASA's efforts to land the first woman and first person of color on the moon using innovative technologies to explore more of the lunar surface than ever before. Kristen Morgan is part of the Artemis program and serves as Programmatic Operations Manager for the Space Launch System Liquid Engines Office at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Kristen, thank you for being our guest. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Artemis is such a complex program. It, It might be helpful to start with the big picture. Could you give us a general overview of the program and its objectives? Sure, absolutely. So um, the Artemis program is pretty exciting. It's our next step in human exploration with the ultimate goal of establishing a long-term presence on the moon. So it's part of NASA's entire moon to Mars exploration approach. And the idea is that the knowledge that we gain from living and working on and around the moon under Artemis will help us take that next step, which would be sending astronauts to Mars. So we have really kind of four basic phases of the Artemis program. So the first phase is um, just getting to the moon with the Space Launch System, SLS and Orion, and that's the phase that we're in now. And then we would establish an outpost that would allow for kind of cislunar operations. And that's where Gateway would come in. Um, And then we start working to kind of gain lunar operational experience with a lot of surface operations. That would be phase three. And then finally, um, the goal is to establish a base camp. And, um, and that would be kind of the end of the Artemis implementation strategy. So right now, we're in the process of just, you know, kicking Artemis off. So the first three flights are really to get humans back to the surface of the moon. And then the following flights, Artemis 4 and beyond, are designed to really kind of help build up that longer term presence and start incorporating some extensive ground infrastructure and surface transportation. And I know this has been an extremely busy year. As the year winds to a close, let's take a look back at Artemis' progress in 2021. What are some of the accomplishments over the past year? Oh, man. So Artemis has been a whirlwind in 2021. So we started the year off in January with the first Green Run Hot Fire test for the Artemis One vehicle at the Stennis Space Center. And um, we culminated that 
green run testing in March with a full duration hot fire test. So that really kind of took up most of the spring. Um, and then we loaded up the vehicle onto the barge and made our trip around Florida to go up to KSC. And we arrived there in late April. And since then, um, you know, engineers have been getting the vehicle ready and kind of running through some of the integrated vehicle test at, at the Cape. So we did um, a big umbilical release and retraction test in September. And then we also completed the integrated modal testing of the vehicle at the end of September. And as of October 22nd, the vehicle is fully stacked at the VAB. So right now we are, we are ready to go. So this year has been really just a whirlwind of, of testing and some, some complex operations that have really involved, you know, kind of every part of the Artemis program. And 2022 is shaping up to be another exciting year. Uh, yes, because 2022 means launch. So, um, yeah, so we are all looking forward to 2022. This is what we have been working for. And it's exciting. It's exciting to see a NASA vehicle back in space. So, yeah, it's really all about launch and then um, and then refocusing and, you know, starting to work on on the next launch. So, um, you know, we'll look at all the data and, you know, hopefully learn a lot about the vehicle. Um, we've still got a lot of work that's going on to prepare the Artemis II and the Artemis III launch vehicles. So, um, you know, the boosters office, the engines office, the tanks office, ground support, we're all working to make sure that we meet the schedule for the Artemis II and the Artemis III launches. But I think that the launch is certainly what 2022 is going to be remembered for. Let's talk about your role, how you got involved with the Artemis program and what you're doing now. So I am in the SLS, the Space Launch System, the Liquid Engine office. So our office is responsible for delivering the RS-25 core stage engines so these are the four engines that kind of sit on the business end of the rocket and the RL-10 upper stage engines. So these are the, the propulsion elements for, um, for the upper stage, which has the ICPS module on it for Artemis One. So my role now is really, I'm kind of in charge of day-to-day programmatic operations, so to speak. So um, I work really closely with our procurement office on all of our contract items. Um, I work closely with our business office on all of our budget and resource questions. And then I work, of course, directly with our liquid engine team and our prime contractor, Aerojet Rocketdyne, to really just make sure that they have all the resources they need to have in the course of the work. And then kind of on a related subject, I also manage the our affordability initiative with the office um, with the prime contractor. So I'm really always looking for more efficient ways to do things, way we can kind of trim our budget. I do a lot of cost benefit analysis. 
and try to develop strategies to to infuse some of these affordability initiatives into the larger engine project. So I'm a little more on the business side of the house, I guess, than the the technical side of the house. Has that always been the case for you with your involvement with Artemis? Uh, with Artemis, yes. So um, I came into the Artemis program um, directly into the liquid engine office, and this is the capacity that I've been working in. Um, I had more of a technical role in previous programs. So I kind of came into Marshall working shuttle. Um, I'm a materials engineer by training. So I did a lot of work on shuttle and then with the Aries program. But so far as Artemis is concerned, at the course of where I am in my career, um, I've kind of switched over from, you know, the hands-on engineering to more of the the project management world. What's it been like for you making the transition from hands-on engineering to the project management side? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I have always kind of viewed myself as a little more of a generalist. I kind of like to dive into things for a couple of years and then move on to something new. And um, project management very much allows me to to do that. There's always something to learn. Um, but there was a bit of a process of just learning how to let go. Um, you know, I think one of the great joys of working at NASA and one of the things that attracted me to NASA in the first place is solving these big grand technical challenges. And, you know, and we really hold our engineers and scientists as heroes in NASA and rightfully so. I mean, they do a tremendous job. So to kind of step back from that world and enter a different world, which is project management, um, it was definitely, um, it was a, it's a change. But again, I, I like it. There's certainly, you know, a lot of challenges. There's um, a big emphasis on communication and soft skills, um, which I kind of like. You know, there's a lot of negotiation and, um, and working across teams and understanding how my piece of the puzzle, in this case, you know, engines fits into the larger picture of you know, how do I fit into the vehicle? How does the vehicle fit into a larger schedule? How does that schedule match up with mission profiles? So it's, it's a different, it's a different perspective, but I like it and I've found it to be, to be rewarding. So I certainly spend a lot more time on budget and schedules than I ever thought. And I know certainly when I was an engineer, I kind of poo-pooed that side of of the world. <laughs> but um, now that I'm kind of seeing things from a different perspective, I realize just how important it is or how important it is to have all these various people coming together to really get a project like this off the ground. Are there lessons learned and experiences that you might share with other NASA engineers and project managers? You know, the thing that I kind of think most and it's applied kind of across the years and I see it all the time is really just to assume positive intent I think when working with colleagues particularly on something this complex um you know I I don't think that means that we necessarily have to agree with each other all the time but 
in work like this, people are very passionate about what they do. And I think if we remind ourselves that we're all coming from a place where we want to do the right thing and we're advocating to make sure the right thing gets done, I think if we can kind of step back and recognize that, then we can come to solutions more readily and we can really kind of understand, you know, what's motivating the other and what what the concerns are and come up with a path forward. And to me, that's a lesson that I learned early on in my career, where sometimes you just have to step back and, you know, ask another person. It's like, I hear you're really passionate about this. You know, what's your real concern? And um, And sometimes that can that can cut through a lot of of the bluster and the miscommunication and really kind of try to hone in on, on what needs to be done to, to make a situation better. Kristen, what are some of the biggest challenges Artemis has overcome so far? Oh man. Um, every day, I think we're overcoming a challenge. Um, right (laughs) now it's, it's all first time through issues. Um, you know, we, we haven't done this before or, not Artemis. We haven't built the SOS before. And um, it's a new vehicle. And, you know, every day something comes up that that was unexpected. So, um, you know, certainly on the RS-25 in the engine world, and I think this kind of extends to practically all the major systems, we're just learning things about our hardware every day. And, um, particularly with engines, we hadn't built an RS-25 engine since the 90s. So we ended up in a situation where um, we had 16 engines that were remaining from the shuttle program. And so we were able to to leverage that remaining hardware and um, get these first few Artemis flights off um, without having to build new engines. But certainly looking forward, we had to to initiate that production. And so what this really meant was trying to figure out how to make something all over again that really we hadn't made in 10, 15 years. So a lot of these shops that had built hardware originally had gone out of business. Um, you know, a lot of the tools that we used to make parts had been scrapped. Um, some of the alloys that we used are just harder to get now than they were in the 90s. So we really had to look at every aspect of the engine and and figure out how to do it kind of all over again. And without a lot of the, the knowledge base that we had originally. So it really is just kind of making something all over from scratch. And, um, and every time you do that, you know, you're going to face challenges, you know, new people are doing things for the first time. And, um, and just really working through those and gaining that experience and just, you know, engineering your way through the problem. Um, those are certainly the, the biggest challenges that we faced so far. And it's good. I mean, we learn from them. Um, it's to be expected, you know, getting to space is, is difficult. And, um, and I'm sure that every element, you know, has similar stories. That I think has been certainly what I would consider some of the biggest challenges to kind of slog through. What do you see as the biggest challenges ahead? Um, 
you know, aside from still having first time <laughs> through issues, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of worry about, and I know we talk about in our office a lot, is um, succession planning and workforce retention. So, um, you know, it's people who get everything done. And we have a workforce that, you know, is just really skilled and competent and dedicated. And, um, you know, to keep conducting missions for, you know, the next 10, 20 years, we need to make sure that we've got people in place, you know, that kind of represent a workforce that has that right diversity of you know, skills and talents and perspectives and education levels and life experiences to, to make the mission work. And um, there is fear that after Artemis One, we may see some of our more experienced engineers opt to retire. And so really trying to pass that that knowledge on and bring up the next generation of um, people with flight experience and operational experience and just know kind of that tribal knowledge of, of how to not only build the rocket and assemble the rocket, but launch it, analyze the results, um, you know, just having those skills in the pipeline is something that we're we're very committed to making sure happens. So I think from our perspective, that's what we see kind of as the largest near-term challenge is, um, you know, making sure that we've got that workforce that we need with the right balance of skills. Absolutely. Is there anything you see being on the inside of the Artemis program that most people may not know about Artemis or that may not get talked about as much but would still be of interest, especially to NASA's technical workforce. Yeah, I mean, everything I think about the Artemis program is exciting. One of the things that I don't think that we hear a lot about are um, are the secondary payloads. And unfortunately, it's probably because they are secondary payloads. You know, um, the, uh, the real objective of the Artemis One flight, this one that's coming up, is it's planned to be the first uncrewed flight of the integrated SLS Orion system. And um, we'll trace this series of orbits around the moon and we'll test out our critical systems. And then we'll come back to Earth and test our heat shield. And that obviously is the, the primary objective of Artemis. But the other objective that we have, and what I think is pretty cool, is we've also, again, we've got these secondary payloads, which are really going to enable a lot of science. And um, and sometimes I think we don't hear as much about the, the science because we're just in awe of this gigantic rocket that we're building. But um, we actually will be flying um, 10 CubeSats, 10 6U CubeSats, and they've all been competitively selected. And we're really going to be able to get some interesting information out of each of these little CubeSat missions. And, you know, the scientists that have been working on these have been working, you know, eight, 10 years to get some of these missions off the ground. So they're pretty neat little experiments in a shoe size sized box. 
about half of the CubeSats will actually be scouting the um, the moon. So they're going to be taking imagery and, um, you know, looking for water ice or hydrogen rich deposits and, you know, collecting information about the the lunar surface and radiation. So, you know, we're just more informed when it comes time for us to actually land on the moon or send people down to the moon. Um, and then there are two others that are pretty cool. Um, one is um, NIA Scout, which is actually going to be kind of going to look for asteroids and um, interact with with asteroids, which is pretty cool. And then the one that I think is really neat is um, it's something called BioSentinel, and um, it's the only biological CubeSat experiment. But it's going to be this long duration biology experiment in deep space with yeast. And so apparently yeast, um, who knew it, has similar DNA damage and repair mechanisms to human cells. So the idea is to send this yeast out into deep space to see how it reacts to radiation. And then maybe we can infer more about how human cells would react to the radiation as well on deep space missions. And apparently there, we also have a, there's a comparable mission that's going up to the space station. So we'll be able to compare the, um, the effect of relative radiation on these yeast organisms. So pretty interesting. And um, each of the Artemis flights is capable of flying these CubeSats. So not only will we have these primary missions where we're really trying to you know, directly expand our presence on the moon, but we'll also have all these secondary payloads that are gathering the information that we need to help on that stepping stone to, to Mars. Many thanks to Kristen for joining us on the podcast. You'll find her bio and links to topics discussed during our conversation at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast, along with a transcript of today's episode. The Small Steps Giant Leaps podcast is on holiday break the next few weeks and returns with the first episode of the new year, Wednesday, January 26th. Thank you so much for listening and being part of another successful year for the show. We appreciate you taking time to engage with the podcast, sharing it with your friends and colleagues, and offering your suggestions and positive comments. As we wind down our podcast activity for the year, I want to give a shout out to the podcast team members, Steve Angelillo, Masha Berger, Dan Daly, and Kevin Wilcox. Thanks for everything you do to keep the podcast moving forward. On behalf of the Apple Knowledge Services team, I want to wish you happy holidays. And again, thank you for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps.